Canucks Central Thursday. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. We are uh, 24 hours later after the Canucks and the rest of the NHL went into and dipped their toes into free agency. And this is where we start to see where the dust settled. And start to look at yeah. how things are setting up. For the Vancouver Canucks in the Western Conference, the Pacific Division, all of those things. But as you know, the Vancouver Canucks' biggest addition is Ilya Mikheyev. They added Curtis Lazar to a three-year deal worth $1 million per each. And Dakota Joshua, who looks like uh, an under-the-radar signing that, if you listen to Patrick Alvin yesterday on the show, uh, he definitely feels that Joshua may be a part of uh, the NHL roster. So, mm-hmm. as has been talked about a lot, Sat, there's a lot of forwards here. Not a lot has changed. They've added Kuzmenko, they've added Mikheyev, but not a lot has gone out the door for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, outside of some RFAs who weren't qualified, Lamico and Highmore, yep. not has really changed. Not much has really changed, but... It's interesting looking at the forward group because if they head into the season as it stands, it's easy to look at it and say, hey, you know, this means trouble. And we'll talk about, you know, guys like Hoaglander, for instance, and some other players, what that potentially means with these acquisitions for those types of guys. But if you just look at it on paper, you're staring at a fourth line that would have somebody like Pearson, Lazar, and Dickinson, potentially. Mm -hmm. That could be your fourth line. And then you could have three scoring lines, so to speak. If Niels Hoaglander uh, does end up in the good graces of head coach Bruce Boudreau. Uh, that's, uh, that's a big if for Niels. But uh, even if he doesn't, here's the thing. Tanner Pearson can easily play in the top nine. Yeah. And we're sitting here and, and trying to say, ideally, you put Hoaglander in the top nine. Ideally, you put him with some scoring players, and that's how you get the best out of him. But as far as the pecking order goes, Pearson may be ahead of him anyways. But even so... You're staring at the possibility of Tanner Pearson being on your third line instead of Hoaglander, if that's the case. There's a lot of forwards. There's a lot of depth. Um, theoretically, the Canucks should be able to f- roll four lines. Um, I would still wonder how it all shakes out. And I do wonder how much, because they've alluded to the idea of, hey, we're still going to look to switch around the defense, but it's probably going to have to be through trade. Um how that may change things. But as it currently stands, they would be happy to go into the season with this roster set. They would yeah. be happy to look at this team and say, you know, we've we've got a pretty good chance at at least making some noise and remaining competitive as money starts to come off the mm-hmm. books going into next off season. But I look at this team and I don't really see a ton of holes in the forward groups at like, it is obviously the strength of this team. Could they be a little bit faster? Sure. Yeah. Um, but they've got some finishing ability. They've got more playmaking ability now with, with Kuzmenko there. I mean, th- there's a lot to like about the forward group. I can certainly talk myself into this forward group doing a lot of good things. It, it's not hard to do that because in addition to maybe lacking a little bit of pace and getting Mikheyev is good and, and Joshua skates well, Lazard's a fine skater. And I think, you know, Dickinson this year coming back, being healthy, he moves well. The guys that aren't really fast 
who are, who are we talking about here in the top nine? Tanner Pearson, mm-hmm. Brock Besser, yeah. And then we criticize as much as Hoaglander and Garland are quick and shifty in that stuff. That they're not straight line, super fast in that sense. But they're shifty and dynamic, and they have good edge work. But there are a couple of guys that aren't necessarily super fast, but they're not a slow forward group. I don't think. Do they have enough bite? Joshua brings some of it. You know, Mikheyev, you know, I'll, I had some people respond to me because I, I summed up Mikheyev as a strong and even being a bit of a physical player. And people kind of pushed back and said, well, he's fast, but he's not physical. He's actually pretty physical. I mean, he wins battles. He throws he throws hits. I mean, if you look at his hits, he throws more hits than a guy like Bo Horvat does, for instance. He wins battles. He separates the man for the puck. He's really good at muscling guys well, off the, the puck Well, the problem is people have... A different definition of physical. Yeah, I mean, when I hear physical, I think what people want to hear physical is like some guy's going to punch you too and run you through the wall all yeah. the time. But Mikheyev's a guy who's on you all the time. He's really tough to play against. So they have some of that, but do they have enough push to be able to have success in the postseason? Because I don't mind a lot of their players. Yeah. I think Besser has shown he can do it. The question really comes down to how would guys like Garland and Hoaglander do? Yeah. The... Ultimately, I think it comes down to, do you get a full year of Pedersen playing like a star player as he did through the second half? Yeah, and I think he will. I mean, I'm just looking at what what kind of weaknesses do they have? They could be a little faster. They could be a little bit tougher. They could maybe have... The one speed or- part of it more comes down to the defense than it does, you know, just the, the general foot speed of each individual player. It plays a big part into it. But at the same time, like how many guys are on this team that are going to separate when they're in a race for the puck? How often do we see that? Yeah. Mikheyev's a guy that's going to do that. He's a guy that's going to put teams on their heels. The Canucks don't have many guys that put the opposition on its heels. And I think you do, you do need some of that. You can play a lot quicker, you're right, and the transition's going to matter a lot. But I, I see those two things being their weaknesses. Because in theory, they have up to three, four 30-goal yeah. scorers if things click. Miller's shown he can do it. Horvat's shown he can do it. Besser's shown he can do it. Or hasn't hit 30, but shown he can be on that pace. He's scored on a pace of 30 goals. Elias Pettersson. So you start going through. I mean, they have guys that can score 30 goals. Maybe you'd like love to have a guy that's a pure 40-50 goal guy. But they have enough guys for you to feel good that they have you know one-shot scores. There are a few of those couple of those guys on the roster. Miller can do it. Pettersson especially. Besser when he finds his shot again. So to your point... We can nitpick a lot on the forward group if they keep it intact, and that's a big if. But it is pretty complete. Yeah. And the thing I like the most about it is the versatility it offers. In what sense? You have Miller who can play center. Yeah. You can go. You can actually do the three scoring line thing if you want to. You actually have the wingers for it now. You don't have to play Pedersen on the wing because you've got enough wingers to really allow him to play an offensive game still. You can have put Colson with Pedersen and Garland, for instance. Yeah. You can have Besser playing with Miller, which is a great duo. Mm-hmm. And then Horvat. Pearson, Miller, Besser was yeah. really, really good last you year. You can do that. And you can throw Kuzmenko and Mikheyev next to Horvat. Yeah. For instance. Or switch it up and have Pearson playing with Horvat again. And maybe it's a more of a defensive-minded line, but that, that one that can still score. Yeah. And... If, if Mikheyev and, say, Pearson are your wingers, there is a chance that you're talking about two 15-goal guys and yeah. Horvat's the winger. But if you are able to create enough 
chances for Bo and he can hit 30 goals playing on that type of line, then that gives you enough production. It's like having three guys that are in that 20 goal range, for instance, on a line. And that's a pretty good, that's a decent second line if you have three guys that can score 20 plus goals. If that's what you're getting from guys that are playing on your third line, as far as even strength production goes, it is solid. So when I look at the forward group, there's a lot to like about the forward group. Are we talking ourselves into this team being pretty good next year? I mean, it's funny because uh, we always joke about some of the analytics stuff. I mean, yeah. we like it. We, I, I like the analytics. We always cite it, obviously. I'm always looking at this stuff. Of course. I don't find it to be the be-all and end-all for me, but I'm always looking for how the numbers are trending. Well, one of the guys that is very popular in, in the community now is Jay Fresh Hockey. He yes. does a lot of the... the he, he's It's very good because he visualizes things, creates player cards, right? Yep. And it's really easy to see. You see all the percentages and all the areas of the game. And it's very easy to 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 look at and, and comprehend. Yes. Hockey Twitter decides who they think is good and bad based on Jay Fresh player cards. Essentially, right? And I'm not saying it's gospel. It's yeah. not. But it's just to to the point that we're kind of talking about when it comes to this roster. They had Vancouver and Vegas as the favorites to win the division right now, with projecting them to be 99-point teams. 99 and only two teams. other teams in the West, he's projecting to have more points than Vancouver and Vegas right now. Colorado. Yeah. And Minnesota. I guess that makes sense. Now, that's not to say Vancouver is in that tier now. Edmonton's at 99. Vegas yeah. is at 99. You know, Blues and those teams are at 99. So you're talking about there's a there's a group of teams that are very, very similar. But based on some of, you know, the analytics for this roster after free agency and after the season that was and the way Demko can play and just looking at this roster, how Pedersen finished the season, when you take that all into, into consideration, some are projecting this hockey team to be, you know, a top three team in the Pacific Division. Yeah. So... And listen, I'm not saying going to this season with with uh, JT Miller unsigned. I see the texts coming in here. Does that mean should should or JT be Vancouver's own rental and all those sort of things? I'm not advocating for that. Yeah. And I still maintain, Dan, I would be shocked if we had to the, we head into the trade deadline and there's no decision on JT Miller yet. I just don't see that happening ultimately. But if we're just looking at at, at, at the assets the Canucks have at their hands right now, if we look at the roster that currently exists. Yeah, you know, the forward group is intriguing. Is is that not the scariest part of this team right now? Look, management has said from one day one, we want to free up some cap space. What did Jim Rutherford say? One of the first things he said, we are not close to being a playoff team and we're capped out. That's not a good place to be in. Right. Right? And a lot of what was said when Rutherford first got here and then when Alvin came in a few months later, it felt as though it felt as though this team was identifying that maybe they had to play it slow while some mistakes come off the books, try to move some contracts out so that they can have a quick reset and maybe start to push forward again in two years' time. Or let a year play out and then see where you're at yeah. after that. That was the sense I got. But now, after everything that's happened, and we've had some critical dates go by where the team has had a chance to make some moves, and we're getting a little bit more intel on how they want to operate, all we've seen is them try to make this team better, Sat. Not, yeah. you know, slow play it, let some contracts, let some flexibility come to them. So... You're right, and and I think like we mentioned yesterday, they've they've 
viewed the situation as having five or six different doors they can walk through. Right. You know, and one door was running it back. And I don't think that was door one, two, or perhaps even door three or four, you know. But it's, it's one of the scariest doors for me. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. It's I, like this is my nightmare. I do not, I do not uh yeah. disagree with that necessarily. Like I you know, I have the same concerns everybody does. But I think just how things align, that's the door currently they're walking through. Now it could still change, and I still maintain we're early in the off season, guys. Like things can really change between now and training camp and especially the next couple of weeks. So we'll see ultimately what happens. But the biggest question I have, Dan, because we can talk ourselves into this roster being competitive, you yeah. know, and I'm not talking about winning a cup. I don't think they're there, obviously, but making the playoffs, maybe fighting for a top three spot in a division, those things are on the table. Hey, heck, maybe even win a round. I yeah. think those things are on, are there because you are improving on this roster just by adding Kuzmenko and Mikheyev. Those two guys are making it better. Yeah. Even Lazar marginally makes it a little bit better. Joshua, we'll see what he does. But then you bake in some other guys being better. The team will be better next season, but is it good enough? And the biggest question I have, because if you do lock in to Horvat and Miller long-term, because you really buy into this roster, you're actually going to run in, you know, run it back and, and then double down on it as well. You just can't do anything else to what you already have. Let's just, for our, right now, the Canucks have $22.6 million in cap space for next season. Yeah. Let's say, let's be conservative that JT and Bo come in at 14 million combined. And that's very team friendly. Yes. Let's just say for argument's sake, that leaves you eight and a half roughly in cap space. Kuzmenko's up. Mm-hmm. So Hoaglander's up. Yep. And okay. <laughs> that's okay because yeah. who knows what those guys are going to be. Mm-hmm. But let's say they're decent. Let's say Kuzmenko's worth four. Let's say you want to give Hoaglander two. That's six. All of a sudden you have two and a half million in cap space left. You haven't touched the defense yet. Still haven't touched. Haven't touched the defense yet. So the point being, as much as, yes, you can buy into this team. Yes, you can buy into running it back. Yes, you can think they can do a lot better. You have to ask yourself, though, where is the space coming to add on top of this? Because there isn't any. If you sign all these guys and Kuzmenko hits, which is great, this is a team. Like, this is a team. Like, if, if, if you run this team into next season with all these pieces and they're successful, that's the same team coming back next season. Unless you find a way to trade somebody on the back end. That's the wild card here that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Uh, can they move Tyler Myers? Can they move? You know, I still don't think you know Tanner Pearson is all that safe just because of his contract. Even yep. though he is a very useful player, um, those are the ways you can maybe relieve some of the cal- salary cap issues. But it's also when it comes down to keeping Besser, which they've already done with a new contract, which keeping Bo, keeping Miller. The the problem with keeping all of those guys is they're all very expensive. And what does it really allow your ceiling to be? That has always been part of the conversation. It really is a big reason why Miller's been identified. There's also been a wonder, how much does he truly want to stay in Vancouver if that is the place he sees for himself Long term, and nobody really knows the answer to that. Hello, Johnny Gaudreau. We've seen how that situation played out. I think you look at this roster, and this is the biggest thing that worries me because if they go into the year sat, they're going to be a playoff team. Yeah. They're going to be, when it gets down to the trade deadline, they are going to be right there. And Jim Rutherford said it himself 
we're not going to be worried until we're like a month out from the trade deadline if JT Miller is still unsigned. That's that's maybe when we start to feel the heat a little bit in the JT Miller conversation. Who's going to have the stones to say we need to move this player if we can't get a deal done? Yeah. Patrick Alvin is on record. We are not in a place where we can afford to lose players for absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't changed. Jim Rutherford said it himself on this show a couple of months ago. If JT Miller's contract negotiation gets out of whack, we have to move the player. Well, and... And here's where, because I've seen the last you know 24 hours or so since Johnny Goudreau, and we're seeing him on TV here, um, being introduced as a member of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Oh man, some of those quotes. We're gonna play play some of them later on in the show. So okay, last year, what did the Calgary Flames do in the off season? Uh, they went for it. Blake Coleman. Blake Coleman was one guy they added. Yep. Mikheyev, Zadorov. Yeah, uh, Mikheyev. And Coleman are not too dissimilar. Nope. Um, now, you can say Coleman's tougher in some sense or whatever, but as far as profiles, not too dissimilar. You can like McKayev better or talk certain things about Coleman or whatever, but as far as the type of players, overall, not too dissimilar. They added Zadorov and Goodbranson to some toughness on the back end, but they weren't really the guys that moved the needle. No. And it wasn't really them necessarily. It was just how they came together as a team. Their top players played well. So if you head into next season... And as we just talked about, this team being okay. And that's how people looked at Calgary after the offseason and said, no, this team could be pretty good. They could be decent. You know, I'm not sure they're a contender, but they're probably a team that's going to make the playoffs. And then they just went off. Yeah. If Vancouver goes off like Calgary did, and you don't have JT signed, yeah. then it becomes hard to trade him at the deadline. And that's why ultimately, Dan, I just Is their don't defense buy. good enough to do that? That's the biggest question mark what here. But was Calgary's? As good as they were, I mean, yeah, it is no, the, nobody likes Zadorov or Good Branson. You saw and, Hannafin yeah. get owned in the postseason. Yep. And, but yeah, Tanev was great, but he got hurt, and that really sucked. But Rasmus well, Anderson. Tan, once Tanev got hurt, like everything else yeah. started to crumble. He was like the linchpin of their decor. Their defense is better than Vancouver's. I will give you that. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm not trying to say Vancouver's is Overall better. talent, yes. Yes, it was better. But there is a world now with the additions Vancouver's made. And I didn't think they're going to make a McKayev type of addition, but they did. So now the world exists where your team could get hot. Because if you're getting projected to be a mid 90 point team, you can get hot and be a 102, 104-point team. Yeah. That's happened a lot. You have a good goaltender. You can be hot, right? You can get some health to go on your side, and next thing you know, you get a lot of points. And then it gets hard to trade him because then you, you fall in the Calgary situation where you're like, we're not sure this guy wants to stay here, but can we punt on this chance to go deep in the postseason? Yeah. And I don't think that's a plan that's viable for this organization. And as much as they're willing to go down that path if they have to, I just don't see it being something that, that just makes sense to do. So one way or another, I expect the JT resolution. I, 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 think, Zach, I, I think training camp, yeah. honestly. I think training camp, there will be a resolution one way or another. There's, uh, it's, it's not even necessarily about obviously losing... The idea of losing JT for nothing is frightening. But I wonder what, you know, that situation would do for this team. We heard how much Quinn, you know, took a big step as a leader and the culture, the winning, how things really flipped for this team once they started winning games under Boudreaux, how dire the situation has been uh, for, for years, the way Bo has talked about this team. Do you imagine they're in a playoff spot and you go and trade JT Miller in that moment? Yeah. How the pl- the rest of that room is going to feel about that? 
that's a really tough situation to navigate. Yeah. You know, St. Louis did it a bunch of years ago. You know, they traded Shattenkirk. They traded some guys at the deadline when they were a bubble playoff team. And everybody got super mad, and then they went and won the cup. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it, maybe it is um, – it, I'm making it more than it actually is because it is part of the business. You have to be able to deal with that as a player. But it is a tough situation to navigate should you choose to go down that road. I just – I look at the way the Western Conference is playing out right now, and I wonder – Outside of Colorado, who are you really all that worried about? And Minnesota, because of their cap situation, just can't keep can't get better outside of just making internal improvements yeah. or getting creative. Well, they're they're getting better via Marco Rossi or Matt Boldy. They lost one of their best player, players in Kevin Fiala. Yeah, and, and the main piece they got back in return, Chris Faber, is not going to be playing in the NHL next season. Yeah. But they have Brock prospects Faber. coming. Brock Chris Faber, Chris also Faber, yes. a great guy, yeah. but Brock Faber. <laughs> Brock Faber, yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's going to take some time. This is the thing about talking yourself into being competitive, though. It's not that hard. Colorado's a juggernaut. They're great. Even if they, you know, uh, who knows what happens with Kadri. Apparently, they're still in on Kadri. But who knows what happens there? They're still a really good team, even after losing some of the players that they've lost. Burakovsky, sure, they can they can make up for that. Minnesota, they are what they are. Probably still are the second best team in the Western Conference. Vegas just lost Pastoretti. Um what are they with Jack Eichel? Still a bit of an unknown. The rest of that roster hasn't really improved outside of adding a Jack Eichel. They've declined and they have some aging players now as well with Pietrangelo and Mark Stone showing some yeah. signs of decline, or at least not being at the peaks of their absolute prime anymore. So that's a bit of a worry. Edmonton, they're Edmonton. They've got the two best players, the best duo in the entire league. They're going to be fine. They're going to win the Pacific next season. They're like probably going to be a 106-point team or something. L.A., I'm still not completely sold on L.A., but they'll be a good team, potentially yeah. a playoff team. Yeah, I think L.A. will probably be a playoff team, but I don't see them taking a huge leap from where, where not, they were last year, even though they got Fiala and yeah. did some stuff. We'll, we'll see. I still don't see them as a juggernaut. My yeah. point is, I don't see a juggernaut team outside of Colorado. And yeah, maybe you come up against Colorado in the postseason and you got no chance you get swept like Edmonton did in the conference final. But this is the thing about talking yourself into being competitive it's not all that hard. Every team in the West has gotten worse, Seth. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the biggest thing to look at. It reminded, we, had, we were having a conversation today, and we'll dig into this more next week and stuff when, when we're comparing the rest of uh, the Western Conference and the division. But it reminded me of where the Canucks were a couple of years ago when they made the JT Miller trade and they added players to the team. And I looked at the roster and I was like, this is probably going to be a playoff team. And not just because of their roster, but that offseason, a lot of teams got worse in the West. You started digging through the teams in the West, you realized, oh, yeah, it's, it's really not that crazy of a conference this year. Vegas is really good, of course, and there are a few teams, but even the Blues don't look like the same, obviously, and some of those other teams. Vancouver can actually make some noise here and, and be a playoff team, and that's yeah. what happened. And this year, when I took a quick glance, and we'll dig into it more over the weekend and stuff, but taking a quick glance at the other teams in the West, there isn't a huge gap. And that's not to say, that, again, that Vancouver is a cup contender, but as far as just being a playoff team and being a team that is competitive, there's certainly a avenue to get there this season. Uh, it's going to be 
really interesting to see how these next couple of weeks play out and what the Canucks end up doing. If they end up continuing to try and rejig yeah. the roster. Well, and Riley and North Van, you know, cite some of these stats. They had the fewest goals against last season, and the defense uh, uh, it gets too criticized and everything. I would say the results were all, a lot of that based on great goaltending, which yes. you don't apologize for, and things did get a lot better and stuff. But there are structural things you can improve. But to Riley's point, is the defense as bad as people make it out to be? They are bad at certain things. Like they are amongst the worst in the league at certain categories of playing defense, you know, transition defense or doing certain things and limiting certain chances. There are certain things they are very, very bad at. They're, but they overall, cross lot passes yes. at uh, like one of the bottom five teams in the league. Yes, that's a big problem. But overall, it's not like a bottom five defense. Yeah, it's more of a if you want to call it average, you you can, but probably a little bit below average. But not significantly. Like I don't think it's 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 the is it ha, it was as big a problem last season as it was made to be, especially in the early parts of the season when all the talk was they're struggling because their defense is terrible, and it was like, well, no, they're just not scoring goals. <laughs> they couldn't score goals for the first half of the season. That was couldn't the biggest chances. Issue. And even the early parts of Bruce Brujo, Bruce Brujo's tenure, they couldn't score goals. But it was that last third uh, post All Star break where they really started to score finally. But uh, it took some time, and they're going to They look like a team that can score next year, but still some concerns. The biggest thing is about how they get the puck out of their own end, and yeah. that's what they talked about at the end of the season, right? That's what Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine really hammered in the end-of-season news conferences, and I don't see how that's gotten better. But we'll see what is left for the Canucks to potentially do. Ian McIntyre, he'll weigh in on uh, what the Canucks have done to this point. And uh, is he talking them himself into the Canucks being sneaky, interesting next year? That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central, a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you. At gripauto.ca today. Um, a lot of great texts coming in to the Dunbar Lumber text line. And one even pointing out that the Western Conference, in terms of teams that are going to be competitive, maybe not all that deep, Sat, because you have Arizona. You have Chicago, San Jose, who's probably not going to compete, especially after trading away Brent Burns yesterday. And then there's Anaheim, who's still well below the salary cap floor, and a team, I don't see how they're going to score goals. They still look like they are building for the future. So you're kind of axing out, what, 20% of... Mm-hmm. The Western Conference, just like that, basically an 11-conference team. That's what uh, Gordy Locke was say- saying uh, on Twitter to us. And he- even some of the teams that got in, is Dallas better after losing Klingberg? They do add Colin Miller, who, whatever, on the back end. Mason they get Mason Marchman. Marchman up front. You can make the argument they're worse. Yeah. Dallas is, I mean, they're Dallas. Yeah. You know, they're a flawed team. They're yeah. in the mushy middle 
they've got some big contracts, so they're trying to remain competitive and stay in their window. But they are what they are. The one thing about the Central, and this factors in for the wild card potentially, both Arizona and Chicago are in the Central. Yeah. So they could prop up, theoretically, some Central teams uh, with the extra games that they play in the Central Division. Yeah, it's it's interesting just looking at it, though, right? Like, it's not a deep conference next season. All the all the top teams are in the East. Yeah. It, it, it was that way last season, and it's even more pronounced this year. I see Edmonton, as much as the projections have them at like 98 or whatever, I, I, I think by the time we get to the end of next season, especially with the way McDavid and Drysaddle can play, and Campbell will give them... I think better goaltending than what they've had the last couple of years in the regular season. I'm not sold, but I think regular season. I'm not se- sold on Campbell, man. But I think regular season wise, that Edmonton team, they might even compete for top for the top record in the West, just because you know I, I think they've actually done a pretty good job overall. They have some flexibility now. They're, they're a good team. Uh, we'll uh, we'll continue diving into that as the show goes on. But let's bring in our next guest. He is uh, the triple threat. Ian McIntyre, you read his great work at sportsnet.ca. You hear him here on Sportsnet 650, and you watch him on Sportsnet television. iMac, what's happening? Well, it's been an eventful day and a bit, hasn't it? Hard to keep up. (laughs) I'd say, you know, the biggest surprise of it all, um, given how much the team has talked about wanting to shed cap space, the biggest surprise is they've added uh, to their salary cap picture uh, since since taking over from the previous regime. Yeah, yeah, and it was a bit of a surprise that they got somebody of Mikhailov's uh, free agent stature and price because I didn't think that was uh, that was in the plans. And and really, if you go back to what Patrick Alvin said uh, yesterday in his availability, I'm not sure it was in the plans. Like they basically checked in on him and found out that he hadn't, you know, predetermined where it was he wanted to go and was open to Vancouver. And I think that deal came together pretty quickly, but, you know, it was only a couple of days before that where Jim Rutherford was, was cautioning uh, against any, you know, grand expectations about free agency that there wasn't a lot of money there it would probably be spent around the fringes of of the lineup, which is how it started, you know, with the Lazar signing. And I like the Lazar signing, but it's still a bottom of the lineup signing, obviously. Uh, but then it was surprising what came with with Mikhailov. It's it's a a big bet, uh, you know, four point seven five times four for a guy whose previous high had been eight goals, but also as Alvin was pointing out yesterday, and and I'm sure. You're, you guys have been talking about for for hours yesterday and today that uh, there's there's so much more to that uh, than than offense from Mikhailov that he he checks so many boxes so many areas of need, but they're still left you know at the end of the day they're left in a in a very you know tight position uh, cap wise now you know that said they're fine to go ahead with the season. Like there's going to be, we'll be talking about JT Miller for the rest of the summer, maybe all through next season. But as it stands right now, there's no real hurdles there. uh, Salary cap wise, they have a team, they have enough players, they're cap compliant or will be. And so they can go forward from this point, but they, they did fail. um, As Rutherford said, they did fail to create 
the the cap flexibility, the cap space that they so badly wanted. Still found a way to go out and get the player they wanted, so maybe they deserve credit for that. But I think we'll probably reserve that for a year or two and just see how Mikhailov does. But I, I like the signing. Well, you know what I find uh, the most interesting about all this is we're finally starting to see some action that gives us an indication of how these guys are going to go about running this organization and managing this team. And a couple of trends we've seen already. They moved Hamannick out. And they were quick to find a replacement they thought fit a lot better with the age range and salary-wise and versatility-wise than Travis Dermott. And then this offseason, they weren't able to clear the money. But to your point, and I kind of heard the same thing, they just saw the opportunity to get Mikheyev at a number they thought made sense. And they thought, this is going to be good for us long-term. Let's just do this now. And as much as they're looking to clear space, they're not looking to clear space, Ian, and sit on it for two or three years and see what happens with draft picks. If they clear space, they're going to go reallocate that money in different ways. And had they been able to clear more space, I think they would, would have been far more aggressive on the back end in free agency as well. Yeah, and they, they also recognize that that's still an area uh, they'll have to address. I, I remember after the last offseason in free agency, uh, which, of course, was under was under Jim Benning, that the story I wrote about the team was like it was a – it's like seeing a house that's been beautifully renovated as long as you don't go downstairs because nothing had been done to the defense. And in some respects, it's the same thing. Like the upgrades that we're seeing, again, it's all to the forward group and and nothing has been done to the to the defense. Um, we're going to see Jack Rathbone, but that's, that's not enough. And, and especially long-term, that they do at some point they're just going to have to like whether they want to or not they're going to have to address the right side of the defense because you've got Tyler Myers with two years to go Luke Shen who was better than anybody thought he would be offered more than anyone could have reasonably expected last year it has has one year to go Tucker Poolman huge question marks over him uh, and and his health and and you know his ability to to live up to that contract and that and that's basically your right side. You're okay on the left with with Ekman Larson and Quinn Hughes and Jack Rathbone, but they're going to have to do something eventually. Clearly, that's not happening. It didn't happen in free agency. Didn't happen at the draft. Didn't happen right after the season. We'll see if anything happens between now and and September. But it's going to have to be done through trade, and and whether it's J.T. Miller or or somebody else, uh, th- that's going to be the area that that I think they'll address next through trade. Though it, it is the hardest position to find, you know, like teams just aren't even if they're like mediocre on their young right shot defenseman, they're still like, well, we're not trading that guy because we know how hard it would be to replace him. Yeah, that, and that's and, kind of and, the spot and, you're and, in with Myers too. It's like, well, we can trade this guy. Uh, but how do we also replace those minutes if we want to remain? You want to give Good Branson four by four? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No, I don't to that question. <laughs> but with Myers now, I think I think it's fair to say you know maybe tap the brakes a little bit on the all all the trade advocacy or speculation about Tyler Myers for this season. I, I think you know when his con once he gets paid his bonus after this year and he goes in the final year of his contract, then I think he's a pretty valuable. Uh, piece to rent out and get something in return but right now they need Tyler Myers and as we've seen and you know his his deal he's overpaid 
but it's not outrageously overpaid for for what he gives them for being a, a 20 minute guy 20 minute plus guy and what he gives them you know it's it's a mistake that that they're they can probably live with uh from a previous regime i remember a real estate agent friend telling me once you know when during one of these really hot periods of the market which is basically the last 20 years but he he said you never you didn't have to worry about being overpriced because in a few months the market's going to catch up well that's kind of what's happened with with Tyler Myers the last couple of years and and what some defensemen are getting now Ian McIntyre our guest so the way i read the situation when when Rutherford came in and and even Alvine afterwards, um, you know, it seemed like their initial philosophy may have been, okay, we gotta we gotta clear out some cap space, get some flexibility in here, maybe let some time pass before we can we can really push this team forward. Maybe in a a year or, or even two from now, uh, it, it feels as though not that they are changing that mindset, but maybe I was wrong in assessing how they felt about the team and that. Maybe any cap flexibility they opened up was planned to be used to remain competitive and try to push this team forward as quickly as possible. Yeah, well, I, going back and listening to what what both Rutherford and Alvine have said since they've been here, uh, I never had the sense that they were saying create cap flexibility for two or three years from now. Uh, I never got the sense it was, well, let, let's retreat and retrench and then take a more cohesive, organized run at this three years from now. I never got that sense from them. I got the sense that they see that this is a team that needs improvements, and it's really difficult to do that when you have inefficient contracts and you're up uh, against the cap. So let's try to build some flexibility, some breathing room, so that we can address these issues. But I uh, always had the sense that they were talking, address the issues as soon as they can and as soon as as is reasonable and and so in that respect the fact that they spent uh the money that they had available you know that about you know by my calculations and it all depends on how you want to how you wanted to configure their and project their roster as of tuesday but they to my calculations they had about six and a half million well it doesn't surprise me that they spent most of that. What what surprises me is that they found a way to spend most of it on one player, that they were able to land a fairly large fish because I thought they'd have a lot of small fish at, at the bottom of the lineup. Well, and, you know, the, the big question, of course, still remains JT Miller. But instead of us always talking about trade, and that's been the big conversation, and Ian, we, we spoke about this during the season and we spoke about during the offseason, that the sense always was if they can make it work, and it's a, it's a big if, the organization would love to keep JT Miller. And I think the inaction and in trade, all it's done is show that the organization is in no rush to move him because they still hope if there is potentially a way for him to stay here. With how things are unfolding, the closer we get to training camp and he's still here, do you think that makes it more likely that he, that he does you know, take an offer that might be on the table? Yeah, it just is really hard, honestly, for me to envision JT uh, taking far less market value than what we're seeing other players get. And that, that is by no means a shot at, at Miller. You know, he's 29 years old. He's, he has far outperformed his contract. He's 
a lot of people say, well, 99-point season, career high. Yeah, but over the last three years, he's still 12th in NHL scoring. So he's been an outstanding player for Vancouver. And his market value is, all you have to do is, you know, look at what's happened today and yesterday and look at what happened late in the season and and go back to comparables the last few years. I mean, he's a seven- or eight-year guy. Uh, If... uh, I think if there's a chance for him to stay, maybe the best way is that the Canucks can can pay him extra on a shorter term. Maybe you can do a five-year deal and you give him money that you know maybe shocks people, but it's a five-year deal and you're not taking on as much risk due to his age with years you know six, seven, and potentially eight. But uh, to me right now, that just still seems like a long shot. Like it, the the term... Uh, has always been the stumbling block in this and i you know i just don't see that changing because his age isn't going to change the the uh, core ages of the canucks other players aren't going to change the team's financial situation with regard to the salary cap well that can change a little but there would have to be something fairly dramatic besides the jt miller trade to make it change uh, profoundly enough to make it seem like it's a good idea to re-sign a 30-year-old player or a player who's going to be 30 years old when his contract expires, re-sign him to seven or eight years. I'd like to think there's a way. I think the Canucks honestly are still trying to find that way. And I think JT Miller honestly is still open to that idea and and, and looking at ways that he might be a Canuck you know, beyond this current contract, but I just think there's a lot, you know, the reality of the situation is saying otherwise. The, the problem I have with it is this is a playoff team. IMAC. like they, they look good enough to be a playoff team. They've upgraded from where they were last year. They add Kuzmenko, they add Mikheyev. They have one of the better forward groups in the Western conference. To me, it's a playoff team. You go into next season with JT Miller and that contract situation Still, the way that it is, and him being a pending free agent, you get closer and closer to the trade deadline. The history of this franchise over the last number of years is that that player is going to walk for free. And that goes against everything that Patrick Alvin and, and Jim Rutherford have talked about in needing to get assets for the player if they can't extend them. Yeah, and, and, I th- and I think that is almost like a scorched earth scenario that if yeah. for that to happen. I mean, l- look at... Look at Gaudreau and Calgary and, and what happened yesterday and the fallout. And, and Calgary is a much stronger team. They're in a better position to withstand that. The Canucks aren't. I, I don't think that Rutherford and Alvin, under any circumstances, will let him, will lose that asset and, and get nothing in return. And, and I think most of us are in agreement on that, which partly what has fueled so much conjecture about a trade because they can't, they can't allow that to happen. But we're a long way from the next trading deadline still, even though we've been talking about JT Miller for months. And if the choice is continuing to, to play the long game on this and see how it plays out versus making a mediocre or, uh, or underwhelming trade right now, uh, I don't blame them at all for not wanting to make the underwhelming trade right now. Like people talk about the return, say, for Kevin Fiala in, in that move to LA 
as being, oh, that's pretty good. That's, you know, that'd be pretty good for JT Miller. Well, that wouldn't be good enough for JT Miller right now because he's, he's a much better player than Fiala. And that was a 19th overall first-round pick and a, and a B-plus prospect. So if the Canucks can't do better than that, I would just to see, as soon see them uh, continue to play the long game and hold on and, and see what might arise. Now, at the end of the day, they may have to settle for a lot less than that. And, and that's part of the risk as well. Like the, you, the, the deal, the offers won't necessarily get better. There's all kinds of things that could happen to the team or JT Miller between now and the trade deadline that would diminish his, his value. But I would rather not see them make a poor trade now rather than waiting to see, use some of the time that they have on their side to see if a better deal comes along. I'll agree with you, though, Dan, because I think this is what you're hinting at. It could just be an absolute circus if they get into next season with JT Miller and, and this continues to be unresolved. You know, how, how do you trade them if they're a playoff team? How do you trade them if not only if they look like they're a playoff team, but they look like maybe they could win a couple of rounds? And we're a long way from that. Yeah. But I'm just saying, what if? Then, then things get, get even harder. So I think it's better for all sides to try to resolve this before next season uh, begins. In fact, I know it's better for all sides to try to resolve this before next season begins. But it doesn't help the Canucks if they make a bad trade now simply to get it resolved. Yeah, I mean, just because it's the worst-case scenario doesn't mean it may not happen. And, and I agree with you that if they get to the deadline with him unsigned, that is by far the worst-case scenario they had envisioned. Even though they're prepared for it, it's not what they want. And what complicates all this is, you alluded to the returns and the trades. Wingers just do not have that type of value in trade. Debrinkit, who people looked at as a 40-goal scorer, I know he's got a big you know, qualifying offer coming up a year from now and everything, but hey, people were, were shocked. They didn't get more than a seventh overall pick and, and a high second-round pick and a third pick, too. And look at Fiala, you know, guy who scores a lot. You know, decent package, but nothing too crazy. Teams aren't willing to give up a lot as far as trade goes for these wingers. And when you look at that, it makes it hard. Because to your point, and even at the deadline, even though teams are interested, I never, th- I never think there was a trade on the table, Ian, that fans here would have been satisfied with. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we don't know what was on the table, which is part of the problem. As I've said before, it would be so much easier for us if there was full disclosure on both sides. Like if you could have had Lou Lamorello on on the show this week. So exactly what went down in Montreal? What were you offering? It would would be so much more helpful to know that, uh, but we don't. It it is hard to to get the value that, that you want, and... I think probably here more than anywhere else. I think people appreciate how valuable Miller is. Often, often, you know, players are are overrated in their own market because there's such an emotional attachment, and, and you lose some of the objectivity and just sort of seeing a player for what he's actually worth, what his statistics actually mean. But if anything, I think. You know, those of us who followed this team closely realize the kind of impact that that Miller has on the organization. How important he is to almost everything that happens on the ice, and it's hard. It's hard to get that value uh, acknowledged in trade from other teams. Uh, how's your summer look, IMac? You going to be uh, out in the Okanagan? What, what what are you getting up to? 
Uh, well, I'm I'm been working more or less steadily. I've been on this Hockey Canada story, and there's huge developments there today right. with with Hockey Canada reopening its investigation and the survivor of the uh, 2018 uh, assault uh, apparently being willing to cooperate. So that's a you know that's a game changer in the investigation. So I've been I've been involved in that, but I'm hoping that uh, when we get to to uh, August, I'll get some downtime, and definitely I'll be seeing a lot of beautiful BC. I'll be going to, the, I know at some point, I'll be doing a wine run through the Similkameen Valley. Oh, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and there's there's some golf courses around there, too, I hear. <laughs> it could be a lot of fun. Uh, iMac, uh, thanks for this. Always appreciate the time. Nice being on with you guys again. Uh, there is uh, Ian McIntyre, and Uh, pointing out that, yes, uh, some big-time developments in the uh, Hockey Canada story and uh, the assaults around uh, the World Junior Team from 2018. Uh, So the investigation will happen, and a lot more details to come out, as should have already happened, but hopefully we start to get more and understand a little bit more of what did happen uh, to that victim. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We are Canuck Central. Coming up, more on what's happening around the league. Still a couple of big free agents. Nazem Kadri, John Klingberg still out there.